Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. For the past few weeks, we have been exploring from the Bible the blueprint that God has for renewal, not only of his people, but renewal for the community, renewal for the world that he's created. Blueprint is a word that is found in Ephesians chapter 1, where it speaks of the blueprint of God for fullness, for the experience of the fullness of Christ. As I was looking and studying and researching about this word blueprint from the scriptures, I came across something that that struck me in the, the vision of a church in the city. And the vision of this church was that it would not be an unremarkable church, that it would actually see a visitation of God's Holy Spirit, that the church itself would facilitate a visitation of God's Spirit and that He would do something remarkable with that church. This was the beginning vision of the founding pastor and the team that founded the church. That idea of not just being an unremarkable people, but rather to be a remarkable church in the midst of a city that needed the gospel so desperately. And as I was looking at this vision or this plan for this church in New York City, the pastor called it a blueprint for revival. And so here I I had seen these two things in Ephesians, God's blueprint for fullness. And then I saw this church that didn't want to be just another unremarkable people facing remarkable problems in one of the greatest cities in the world, but rather to be a remarkable people in a remarkable church. And they called it a blueprint for revival. So as I began to think through God's blueprint, I always go back to the Old Testament where we see this characteristic of God's people that instead of fullness, they're always failing. Instead of fullness, they're always in decline. They're in difficult situations. But one of the elements of the blueprint of God for renewal of his people is that he brings remarkable obstacles in the path, usually of fairly unremarkable people, so that he can do these unforgettable things on their behalf and those of us who are of the generations that follow them can look back and say, look what God did for this group of people. Such is the case of the passage that we're looking at today. In Joshua chapter 4, verses 21 through 22, the people of God face a remarkable obstacle the River Jordan, they cannot cross. They have no way through it. They have no way around it. They have come to the very vision of the promised land, and God has to do something remarkable for them. 
So here is what happens after he parts the River Jordan and they walk across on dry land. God speaks to his people and he says, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. You see, it doesn't take remarkable people. <laughs> what it takes is a remarkable or an unforgettable obstacle in their way so that God can show what He showed here to all the peoples of the earth that the Lord is mighty and that you may reverence, you may fear, you may love the Lord your God forever. Now, I've said all that and I've read the scripture to you because I think we're facing remarkable obstacles in our day. And I think for a lot of people that I've met over my life as Christians, they really would rather just live an unremarkable life. They'd like to just have enough food to eat, have a place, uh, a home, a shelter. They'd like to have the clothes they want to wear. They want to have sufficient entertainment. They want some security. They want their health. They want relationships. But our God calls us, even though we might be unremarkable people, he calls us into moments in history where there are remarkable obstacles that can only be faced if God himself will show up. We are living in such a time. When you think of the issues of racial injustice that we're facing and, and the division that's in our land, the, the incredible powerlessness that we have felt as our whole nation has been shut down and the possibility that this is going to last much longer than we want. And even if it doesn't last, we will never be the same from any of the circumstances that we have faced in the last few months. And we shouldn't be the same. But the question is, are we going to come to the edge of the promised land and just say it's impossible? Or are we going to come to the edge of the promised land, see the obstacle and say, Lord, you parted the Red Sea. Lord, you parted the River Jordan. Now part the river for us and let us walk over on dry land. And God was so desirous that his people would remember his might, his ability to save, his ability to deliver. He was so desirous that they would love him for him that he said to them, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to command you to take out 12 stones from that river. And I'm going to ask you to remember. So that whenever you face impossible objects and impossible obstacles, you'll see those 12 stones and you'll tell your children when they ask as well. And so why is it that we need a blueprint? Why do we need 12 stones? Well, it's very clear from this passage is that we have this incredible tendency 
to forget. Just as they forgot that God had led them across the Red Sea, and now God would lead them across the River Jordan, they had already forgotten the deliverance of their people from a previous generation. We have this incredible tendency to forget. Even though God did something unusual, He did something strange, parting the waters, walking over on dry land, but it was also something marvelous and miraculous. I mean, think of the context of this. This is a generation of people who have been wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, for 40 years. Finally, they are, they are at the promised land. They're at the place they were looking for and the place they were longing for. There was a land of blessing just on the other side of the obstacle. The land that was flowing with milk and honey. And yet, they looked and they said, we can't reach there. The river's in our way. And so they, they had to rely on the Lord. Again, I say to you, this was not a remarkable group of people, but they faced a remarkable obstacle and God did something remarkable. The answer was that God divided the waters of the Jordan and they went through. Just as their forefathers had gone through the Red Sea, they went through on dry land. And so God gives them this command. He says, take out these 12 stones. And they, they took the stones from the very spot where the priest had stood as they held the Ark of the Covenant in the river while God parted the, the waters. And he said, take out the 12 stones. And then he set them up there in Gilgal. I mean, think about the why of this. There were two remarkable incidences that God recalls to them as he commands them about the stones. He says, there was the crossing of the Red Sea, and here's the crossing of the River Jordan. Why would there be such a need, we could ask, why would there be such a need to remind people when there was such, such a visible the external objective way of such things. I've heard people often say to me, if I could just see a miracle, I've heard people say, well, if a burning bush appeared before me, then I would believe. But what God is saying here is that even though people see remarkable incidents, when trouble comes or a new obstacle comes that seems so big and so daunting, it is easily forgotten how God delivered us from the past obstacles. As a matter of fact, what God is basically showing here is that his remarkable deliverances of us get blotted right out of our minds. And in the case of the people of Israel, of the children of Israel, their consciousness in subsequent generations did not include the mighty power of God to deliver them. As a matter of fact, they forgot so quickly that they actually turned to the gods of the Canaanites and they gave themselves as if they were lovers of those gods, they gave themselves to those gods in an adulterous and idolatrous way. They forgot. See, one of the first things we have to realize about ourselves and why we need a blueprint, friends, is because we have this tendency to forget even the greatest and the most wonderful things when we're faced with the new challenges that stand before us. One of the most devastating effects of sin is the way that it puts a paralysis on our mind to remember. Even our memory gets paralyzed because all we can think about is what we're facing right now. And so God says, take the 12 stones because my life 
depends on remembering. Now, why do I say that? Well, because it's very clear that as the Old Testament, as the Hebrew Scriptures unfold, the very people that God saved in such dramatic ways, the very people that God gave a promised land to in such dramatic ways, forgot. And they turned away from his love, they turned away from his resources, and they gave themselves fully to the false gods of the Canaanites. And that ended up ending up in captivity to Babylon. It ended up in being overwhelmed by neighbors around them. You see, your life, the fullness of your life depends on remembering. See, if you can understand, there's many ways to define sin, but this is an excellent way to describe and understand sin. Sin is a distortion. It's a dislocation of your heart. Now, look, when I'm talking about heart, I'm not talking about just your emotions. When the Bible talks about your heart, it talks about the control center of your entire self. That your heart is where your deepest beliefs are, where what you trust resides. Your heart is where your deepest commitments come from. What happens is sin in the heart distorts what you believe, distorts what you remember, distorts how you commit even to the things in your life. Because what happens is there are disordered priorities in the heart, disordered loves. And so sin is a disorder of the heart, a disorder of your memories, so that your true center is not in God, but it's disordered into how do I get satisfaction and fulfillment from my physical appetites, from my physical senses, instead of my spiritual connection with God. So this distortion in the heart is expressed as then a basic motive for all of your life or all of human life. That's what sin does. Sin isn't merely a disobedience or a breaking of the rules. It's a heart desire of every person, not born again of the Spirit, for every person to be his or her own Savior and Lord. See, the original temptation of Satan in the garden was, you will be like God. He said, you will not find your fulfillment, your life in God. You will find your life, your fulfillment, in satisfying your physical desires and your physical senses. So what, what does that mean then? Well, it means this, that the focus of sin in our disordered hearts is self. I mean, think about the terms selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed. Even the way we read the Bible, when we've not dealt with sin in our life and we've not dealt with self in our life and there's a disorder, even the sin in us can disorder or distort the way we look at our Bible reading. For example, uh, I, I rely here on Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who says, we are all so morbidly concerned about ourselves and our own problems that we even go to the Bible as a book which is going to help us with our problems. We want some help, we want this and that, and we go to the Bible as if it were some sort of dispensary to deal with the mumps and measles of our souls. 
Here's what Lloyd-Jones says. Our very approach to the Bible is so subjective, in other words, so self-centered, self-absorbed, instead of being objective. How often, I wonder, do we go to the Bible saying to ourselves, I'm going to read the Bible because I want to see what God has done. I'm going to read my Bible in order that I can look at God acting and intervening in history. See, the Bible is not just a book that answers our little questions and tells us various things that I may want to know. The Bible is the record of the activity of God, the manifestations of God, God's mighty acts and God's mighty deeds. It doesn't matter how big the obstacle in front of us is. When we go to the Scriptures and we are self-absorbed, We are looking for Him to answer in a way that we can understand and we can control. But when we go to the Scriptures, as the Scriptures should be approached, we see the mighty acts of God. We see the faithfulness of our God. We see that God is bigger than any river. He's bigger than any sea. And He can walk us through on dry land in anything that we're facing. But if all we do is go in our self-absorbed, In our disordered hearts, we are looking for him to do it our way and to do it in our time. Here's a biblical perspective in looking at the very work of God, seeing the blueprint of God. I'm going to stand back and I'm going to see what God the Lord has done, that all the people of the earth may know the hand of the Lord that is mighty. You see, when we stand back and we say, I'm going to see what the Lord Almighty has done, and I'm going to see how mighty He is, then then you're opening up space in your life. You're opening up space in your generation to say, God has done it in the past. He can handle this situation. Now, I've come to understand that for you to be able to believe for the big things, You have to have won the battle over self in private. David, when he came up to his big test in public, he had no trouble whatsoever saying, the Lord is mightier than Goliath. Now Goliath looked huge, and he was a mighty big obstacle in the way of the people of God. And everybody else was afraid of him, and no one else would challenge him. But here comes the shepherd boy, Very young, untried in combat or battle, and yet with total confidence. Why? Well, because when no one saw him, he knew that the Lord was mighty because the Lord delivered him from the lion. When no one saw him and there was no one to praise him and there was no one to see his courage, he stood in the face of a bear and the Lord delivered him from that. And he said, if the Lord could deliver me in private, then the Lord will deliver me in public. Yeah, please, please understand what I'm saying. God has put us in a situation at a time where there's something in the way of his promises. There's something in the way, whether it's racial injustice or it's a reordering of our whole society or it's looking at things differently as a church, becoming a new wineskin in which he can pour out new wine upon us, whatever it is that's in the way of the promises of God being fulfilled in our, our generation, 
We have the confidence when we look at scriptures to see the bigger biblical perspective and say, nothing is too big for our God. Whatever stands against him, whatever stands against his will and his purposes will fail. Whether it's a Goliath or a Red Sea or a River Jordan, it does not matter. But just for a minute, Will you think about this with me from a biblical perspective? To me, God is having us focus on seeing a a change, a transformation socially. That there really would be justice for all. That there really would be equality for all. But have you ever thought through how significant it is that this is 401 years since the advent of slavery in the United States? Isn't it possible that even that year is is significant when you look at the whole of biblical perspective? For 400 years, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And then in that period of time, he delivered them, set them free and led them into the promised land. Isn't it interesting that there was 400 years between Malachi and the birth of Jesus, between the last prophet and the last prophetic book and the birth of Jesus. Isn't it possible when we start to see the big picture of how our God in his might and in his power begins to move, that he is never late. He may not be early, but he is never late. And so we start to believe and we start to see, God, you've moved in the past in mighty ways to deliver not only your people, but the whole earth. Are you not in this season delivering the people of God, the people of our community from oppression, from disadvantage, from injustice? Maybe, friends, looking at the patterns of Scripture, this is God's timing. And we need to be those who realize it will be his might that delivers us, just like he delivered from the Red Sea and he delivered from the River Jordan, and that it's time for us to believe from a bigger biblical perspective that God is doing something big and he's doing something mighty in our midst. I mean, do you not see that this principle of remembering is found not only in the 12 stones, but it's found in the communion? words and institution of our Lord Jesus Christ when he said, do this in remembrance of me? Well, if I'm understanding his communion commission to us, he's saying, remember this for intimacy, not just for kind of a dead orthodoxy, not just for religious ritual, but remember this, that every time that you eat and that you drink, that you are being reminded of the grace and stirred up the grace that's in your heart, or that something special, something remarkable is happening because you're remembering that I gave my body for you. I gave my blood for you. In me, you have both have life and you have forgiveness. In me, you have healing both emotionally and spiritually. In me, you have, have everything that you need for life and godliness. But you've got to remember it for intimacy not just for orthodoxy. Now, this is important to me. Maybe I won't be able to make it as important to you as I think it is. See, 
he's saying here that if he didn't command us to remember, we would forget. We would forget even the death of the Son of God. We would forget his great love for us. Because when we look at difficult circumstances, when we forget and we don't remember, we say, how can you let this happen to me? How can you let bad things happen to me? And we begin to question God's goodness on the basis of circumstances, or we begin to question His love because somehow we feel powerless or out of control to, to affect the kind of results that we want in our life. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks to this. I, I may have to explain this to you, but this is a powerful way of understanding it. He says there's a terrible danger of our putting the doctrines or these great truths about Christ, these great truths about God, it, it, we have a danger of putting them into concepts or correct ideas about the persons instead of really experience the person and the work itself. See, maybe it's affected me more than anybody else, but I grew up in a theological tradition that it was far more important to explain, to describe, and to get the correct idea of God than it was to actually experience God. That there were people who had no love, who had no humility, but they had the correct doctrine and they had the, the correct you know, explanations of God and His sovereignty and, and, and salvation and the way it took place and everything. And yet there was nothing in them that, that seemed to bring them into a place of humility or love or even of sort of patience. They were angry people. And what I see is a lot of times in the church we've had people who were really majoring on getting the idea correct but not really encountering God. There is a need, friends, that in everything that we learn, in everything that we are, we are trying to get knowledge of, that we actually, every experience becomes a greater intimacy with Christ. Every um, morning during the pandemic, I've been doing a devotional, taking uh, a passage from beginning in Galatians, and we've worked through Colossians. And what I, what I see as I've done this every morning, one, I've seen that there's so much more that I'm learning every day as I pour into the Scriptures in order to pour out in devotion. But what I've, what I've really seen so very clearly is that Paul, in every verse, in every word that he speaks, he's saying that there is no intimacy for so many, that they have a religious experience, that they have a, a desire to be moral, or they have a desire to, to, to live up to the law of God. But he says, but they don't know Christ. Because only in Christ is their fullness. Only in Christ is the fullness of God indwelling the heart of a man or a woman or a boy or a girl. And the fullness of God is this. The fullness of the Father is in Jesus. The fullness of the Spirit is in Jesus. And when He gives you His Holy Spirit, He gives you the fullness of the Father, the fullness of the Son, and the fullness of the Spirit. He doesn't give you a lesser or a diminished spirit or a partial spirit. He gives you the fullness of God. 
So you can have the concept of that, but if you've never encountered it, then encountered him in that way, then you have not known and you have not lived in the fullness. Why do we need a blueprint? Well, because once you remember what you've been given in Christ, and truthfully, this is the difference between Christianity and religion, is Christianity says, here's what God has done for you in Christ. Here is what God offers you in Christ. And religion says, here's what you must do for God in order to be accepted by God. I mean, which is it you're going to remember? Are you going to think like a religious person and saying, how much am I doing for God? Or are you going to think like a believer in Christ and say, how much has God done for me? And remembering is the only way that that comes into your heart. But once you start remembering, all you want is more. Paul said everything in his life was counted loss, except he wanted to know Christ more. He's willing to be completely united with the fellowship of his sufferings. He was completely wanting to be united to the power of his resurrection because remembering made him want more. Now, I know I'm telling you a lot of things, but I I just really believe that the more I see what Christ has done for me and the more I see what he can do in a church, in a community, I just want more. I'm not satisfied to be an unremarkable people in an unremarkable church in an unremarkable time. Look, even in Massachusetts, you know, as a New Yorker, it's hard to be excited about something from Massachusetts. But even in Massachusetts, back in 1735, there was days of heaven that they experienced on earth. Think about this. It says, the work of the Spirit, a visitation of the Spirit came, and it made a glorious alteration in the town, so that in the spring and summer, so that in the spring and summer following it, that is to say the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It never was so full of love, nor so full of joy, and yet so full of distress as it was then. Do you see? There was a remarkable distress, but it was met by the presence of God in this town. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy in families on account of salvation being brought to them, parents rejoicing over their children as newborn Husbands over their wives, wives over their husbands. The doings of God were then seen in his sanctuary. God's day was a delight. His tabernacle, tabernacles with them were amiable. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached, some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. This account was written by Jonathan Edwards. He was there. He was ministering there. He saw not only did the church experience something remarkable, but the whole town in their distress discovered the remarkable, mighty power of God and the presence of God. Look, remembering these kind of remarkable acts of God in the past 
I mean, if you're alive in Christ, it makes you hungry for more. It makes, it makes it to where you take these unremarkable people, these unremarkable churches, and they become memorable. They become 12 stones worthy because of the visitation of God. What is this visitation of God? Well, here's where I want to get down to it with you. A revival is a miracle. Uh, there are two ways to look at revival. Some take the, the idea, well, you hold special services and you put a special emphasis and you push people to come to the church or attend or whatever it is. Friends, that's not really revival. That's us trying to work up the work of God. What, what we're talking about is when God comes. Not when we get more animated, not when we get more motivated in terms of we're going to do more work. But rather when we are so desperate for God because of the remarkable obstacles in our way that we begin to say we need your visitation. We need you to come to us. Something, the revival or renewal is something that can only be explained as direct intervention of God. You know, Men can produce evangelistic campaigns, but they cannot and never have produced a revival. My hero in this is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He preached a series of sermons all the way back in 1959, and what he was doing was remembering a visitation of God that had taken place in 1859 through the U.S. and the U.K. In 1959, his assessment was this. During the last 70 to 80 years, this whole notion of a visitation, a baptism of God's Spirit on the church has gone. And he begins to give some of the reasons that this, even the desire for the visitation of God as a baptism of His Spirit on the church have gone. And he said it's fear. People have been afraid of, in a sense, the excesses or the emotions that bring about kind of a messiness People are afraid of losing control because if the Spirit comes, you have to yield to the Spirit. You can't make the Spirit yield to your programs or yield to your, you know, your own methods and your own techniques because revival is not a technique. It's a visitation of God. So if we're afraid of the Holy Spirit, if we're trying to hold on to control, if we're fearful that it will be messy, then we have already said, Holy Spirit, don't come. Because we want to stay in control. And so what happens is we face these difficult circumstances without the adequate power and the adequate presence of the Spirit to be a remarkable church or a remarkable individual. Now, a lot of what I believe has been shaped by both Jonathan Edwards and Martin Lloyd-Jones. I believe, friends, I believe that words are very important. But I think what's happened is we've come to this place like Lloyd-Jones talked about where we're trying to always get the correct idea and the correct description and the correct theology of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we do it in such ways that we have missed the power and the experience of the Holy Spirit. It's really not a difficult thing to realize that the apostles who were used mightily of God, had numerous dramatic experiences, even baptisms of the Holy Spirit. 
In John 20, 22, Jesus breathes on his disciples. He breathes on the, the apostles and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. So directly from Jesus himself, by Jesus' breath, they receive a baptism or a, a beginning in the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, they have spent these days in the upper room and then the Spirit comes and it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. But that's not the last time that we see, just within a short amount of time, in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, it says, and when they had all prayed, this is after Peter and John were released from prison, it says, when they had all prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, I know, and, and I don't have time to go into the controversy over whether the evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit, the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is tongues or not. Yes, in 2 chapter 4, there is an evidence of tongues, but it's not a prayer language. It's actually to be able to speak in the heart languages of other people so that the gospel could go right to the heart. But here in Acts chapter 4, 31, it gives us a clear evidence that when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they, they had power, they had boldness to speak the Word of God. This was the evidence. These unremarkable people were now remarkable because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. See, some people want to say that, that, that this idea of baptism is nothing more than simple regeneration of being you know, brought from being a, an unbeliever to being a child of God. And of course, the work of the Holy Spirit is to initiate us into the church, to speak prophetically our adoption as sons and daughters. And without the Holy Spirit, you are not born of the Spirit and you cannot be a Christian. But it, what's happened is because people have relegated this idea of a baptism of power, a baptism of the Spirit, to only regeneration. There are many people who never preach that we need an outpouring of His Spirit, not only on ourselves individually, but we need an outpouring of the Spirit on His church. Secondly, there are some people, and I, I was around this in seminary, who had kind of a developmental view that said everything you need is already within you. Just develop into it and you'll be fine. But how does that account for all the times that God arrested the heart of individuals, arrested the heart of the church with a visitation and an outpouring of His Spirit that resulted in extraordinary work that came, had extraordinary results come forth? If it's all just developmental, why is it that in history we have needed God to baptize His church and to baptize us in the midst of crises? Well, here's what I believe. You can be a believer, and if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, but you can still not really be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always in response to your faith, he's going to, he regenerates you. He makes you a new person. He makes the father of our Lord Jesus Christ your father through adoption. He initiates you into the body of Christ. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. But there is, 
There is something that I'm trying to get at today. And again, I think the words are inadequate, but there is a sense in which Christ wants to baptize you with his Holy Spirit. You know, I'm so, there's something obviously distinct from and something that's separate from just becoming a Christian, becoming in regenerate or having the Holy Spirit indwelling you. I, 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 I want you to understand that it is possible because you are afraid of the Spirit or because you're trying to control the Holy Spirit or you're afraid of the messiness of the Spirit that you might be quenching or grieving the Spirit. Because when Christians in history have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, they have a sense of His power and His presence like never before. And this brings about the, the greatest possible form of assurance. You become unstoppable you become remarkable. Would you at least try to hear in your spirit, to hear in your heart that you need a fresh baptism? As a matter of fact, just to give you this, this last word, the baptism of the spirit is a new, fresh manifestation of God to the soul. There's an overwhelming knowledge given to you of God's love in Christ Jesus. This is the greatest and most essential characteristic of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It is experiential. It is undeniable. There is an immediacy between you and God that goes beyond ordinary experience and it fills you with overwhelming joy. It will turn advocates of Christ into witnesses of what they have seen and heard. Oh, come on. We are facing remarkable obstacles. We need to rise up and see how mighty our God is. But he needs people who are desperate and hungry for him. And he will say, my remembering what you've done in the past makes me hungry for more now. And say, I want to be baptized. Christ, baptize me with your spirit. Baptize me with an outpouring, with a fresh manifestation, a fresh visitation in my soul. Would you say that with me? If you ask and you believe, you will receive. He does not turn away. He wants to pour out this fresh manifestation in your life. And I want it for our community, for our church, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive now. Say, baptize me afresh in your Holy Spirit. I and then watch and see what God does next. In Jesus' name, amen.